This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the -the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF. Feeling like summer out there. Well, and welcome once again to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, your intrepid host. I suppose an intrepid host is like an intrepid reporter. Always on top of things here, and we are looking at the U.S. 10-year bond at 1.558%. So it has drawn back. Very interesting little chart. You see a long march from August all the way up to April, with the 10-year bond really accelerating in, say, February to April. And what you've seen in the last two months is a basically a dropping back. The trend does not seem to be broken, interestingly, but you do see it drawing back. So we continue to have this uncertainty on what direction inflation is going. If we look at gold... I mean, gold, it's its really hard to, I don't think we can say too much about inflation in gold in the short term, but it is showing strength. It's at $1,894 right now. It's almost at $1,900 this morning. So that momentum continues. So all very interesting, copper at $4.51 per pound. So it's not like prices are falling. So, I mean, my theory, at least on the crypto markets, is the summer is going to be off. We're taking the summer off. People are going to go outside and they're not going to be staring at green and red numbers on their computer screens quite as much, especially after being locked up for a year in their homes. And speaking of that, I just got my vaccine last week. I'm in Germany. And everybody always asks the first question, what vaccine did you get? And I got the Pfizer. And uh, I I could have gotten the Johnson & Johnson or the AstraZeneca earlier, but I heard enough stories about the mRNA being the kind of luxurious version of the vaccines. And again, this isn't medical advice nor financial advice, but just my sort of anecdote. So I decided it was like a two-week wait, so why not wait? Now, what was shocking about that, though, uh, first, it was pitched to me to get the Johnson & Johnson. Oh, one shot and you're done with it. Okay, that's great. That's pretty cool. But you know what's interesting? AstraZeneca, there is a much longer wait as far as from what other people tell me. Same with Moderna. I know people are waiting six weeks. With Pfizer, I get the next shot in two weeks from now. So I got that a week ago. So it's only a three-week wait, which is phenomenal. And my doctor asked me, he's like, do you want to wait three weeks or six weeks? And I said, well, can I do three weeks? And he said, you're young and healthy. Do the three weeks. I did the three weeks. So that's exciting. So are we going to be really staring at our computer screens and numbers for the next two months as the weather finally hits and summer takes hold? Perhaps, but I have a feeling it's just going to be, uh, as a society, as a 
psychologically, we actually want to go out and have some real experiences. Maybe put some of that money to work in the real world by going to a nice fancy restaurant or buying a plane ticket or something. So anyways, so exciting times here. Summer is taking hold and the mining industry seems to be just chugging along here. As we heard last week, it is in great shape. According to David Garofalo, we have a follow-on presentation this week on the cloud, and this features two of the top executives dealing with technology at some of the biggest mining companies in the world. Anthony Downs, head of digital transformation at Valet, is joined by Dean Gehring, who is executive vice president and chief technology officer at Newmont. And they talked to the Northern Miners science reporter, senior reporter, Carl A. Williams at the Global Mining Symposium. And this was just a couple of weeks ago. And they talk all things about the cloud cybersecurity. So a very prescient topical conversation, which is probably a must listen for mining executives out there. One of the big takeaways for me was this idea that what the cloud enables is a standardization of how you treat your data across the whole organization. And when you're dealing with a global mining company, say that works in several continents, you know, it really does take the idea of multinational corporation to a whole new level. Because at that point, you know, it starts to raise philosophical questions, doesn't it? If you start to have the bulk of your corporation, in other words, your data and how you process that data, your your systems for dealing with that data, if that's all in the cloud, it seems to render borders just a little bit less important, doesn't it? I mean, they become truly global companies, you know, kind of a whole new way of thinking about it. So to me, this is a kind of... A, a, a different kind of globalism. Some people say globalism is dead, but I guess it depends on your definition, right? I mean, some people would probably say it's still alive and well, but as a political term, it's dead. But as a philosophical and just a, a statement of fact, it seems like globalism is very much alive and well in the cloud. So, who knows? Maybe I'm just being controversial here. If you have different opinions or you think I've got this wrong, just leave me a comment. I'm happy to read them. So, a very exciting show coming up, and we got some Rio Tinto story. And that company continues to blow my mind with how they can't stay out of the news for the wrong reasons. There's a, I, I just, it just makes me wonder, why is it always Rio Tinto? Is there a problem still at Rio Tinto and... Maybe there's not, but we'll take a look at the stories. So that's all coming up. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, let's start with this Rio Tinto story. Serbia may decide fate of Rio Tinto's lithium project in referendums by Cecilia Jamazmi. It says here, Serbia's president, Alexander Vukic, may seek voter approval for Rio Tinto's Jadar lithium project near the city of Loznica in western Serbia as community opposition grows. Speaking on local TV today... Vukic said the government fully supports the project, 
which could become Serbia's second largest export earner once developed. He also said his administration won't let it happen if it doesn't get the people's approval first. Jadar has been facing local opposition due to heritage issues. Its footprint covers the area around Polje, a Bronze Age archaeological site, as well as several classified natural monuments. So here we go, another archaeological site. Now, you would think Rio Tinto would just say anything that has anything to do with archaeological sites, we are taking a break on for the next 18 months, just because of what happened in Australia. You would think, but here we go again. So we have a quote from activist Maria Alimpik, who said, quote, this part of Jadra and Radjavina has been inhabited for more than 8,000 years, and no one will drive us away. We will give our vote to nature, and there is no referendum nor profit that is above nature. Sort of an unusual argument. We're giving our vote to nature. Now, to be fair to Rio Tinto, maybe after what happened in Australia, the go-to narrative for the activists is simply to say, hey, this is an archaeological site. Get out of here. <laughs> right? So, I mean, we're, I mean, again, if we, if we parse Maria Olympic's statement, it says, this place has been inhabited for more than 8,000 years. And no one will drive us away. I mean, what part of the earth hasn't been in, inhabited for 8,000 years? So, so let's just keep looking here. We're trying to be fair here. But again, if I was the CEO of Rio Tinto, I would just be like, guys, why am I seeing headlines about us and archaeological sites? Why? And then it could be because, remember the board. Remember the board. And the board is the one who keeps putting out these kind of, you know, morally, what I consider from a personal point of view, morally, there's a deficit of morality in the statements. It's not that they're immoral. It's just they're not, there's no kind of moral leadership from my personal perspective, from the limited documents that I have seen. Continuing on in this article, Nadamo Jadar says Rio's proposal covers 22 villages and mining is to occur under two riverbeds, both of which are prone to flooding. And we have a quote from Nadamo Yadar member Mariana Petkovic. And she says, quote, we own land with archaeological remains dating back to the Bronze Age. And the area also contains classified natural monuments. And she said this at a rally in front of Rio Tinto's offices in Serbia. So, yeah, this does seem like it's more than just a piece of land, Right. This does seem, again, which just makes it all the more mystifying that Rio Tinto would go within a uh, hundred miles of this project after what has happened. And we have a further quote from Pekovic, quote, how can Rio Tinto's CEO be serious about making protecting cultural heritage a center issue when at the same time in Serbia, the company wants to develop a mine that will swallow up natural monuments and heritage dating back to the 14th century BC? Well, that is exactly the question. That is exactly the question. It would be nice to hear from Rio Tinto's CEO on this. Coordinated protests against the proposed mine were held in April in London, 
coinciding with Rio's annual general meeting, as well as the miners' office in Belgrade and Washington, D.C. So like I was saying in the intro, my red flag here is the fact that I keep seeing Rio Tinto in these situations. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen to other companies, but as far as global mining companies, Rio Tinto is repeatedly in situations like this that always kind of, you know, reference this sort of 80s corporate raiders mentality, which is completely out of fashion right now in a world of ESG. Like it always kind of has this like the villain in the documentary about the mining company that is going to, you know, develop the land of the local peoples against their will, right? Like, and this is the problem. And so the perception is awful here and it kind of does the rest of the industry a disservice because I think the rest of the industry, and I think the jury's out on this, I, but it, it sure raises questions, but I think the rest of the industry to generalize is working overtime to seem like good corporate citizens. As a whole, it's actually pretty impressive. And it only takes, you know, a story like this to keep happening from the same company that all these old stereotypes, all that hard work, you know, is sidelined by stories like this. So it does raise issues, again, about Rio Tinto's board because they have put out – remember the – it was just only a few weeks ago, like we – they put out the statement that we understand that you're mad – but they didn't say anything about it being the wrong decision. It was about the the former CEO's outgoing pay, his pay package. And what they said was they didn't start with saying what a terrible thing Rio Tinto had done. They just said, we understand that you're mad. And they didn't say, uh, you know, we think that what happened was terrible. They just said, yeah, we understand that you're mad. And they went ahead as far as I understand. So more questions. I mean, it, 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 what's shocking to me, it's not like every six months we get a story. It's like every two weeks, there's another Rio Tinto story. And so let's, let's see what happens next. A uh, couple more stories here. BHP is paying $93 million for environmental damages at Escondida. It's also by Cecilia Jamazmi. And what have we here? BHP, the majority owner and operator of the Escondida copper mine in Chile, will have to spend up to $93 million as part of an environmental plan drawn up to resolve a lawsuit from the state over water use and related damage to a sensitive area in the country's north. The case goes back to April last year when the Chilean state sued BHP over alleged, quote, irreparable damage, end quote, to the Punta Negra salt flat in the northern Antofagasta region. The bone of contention was the mine's now abandoned practice of drawing water from the salt flat. The area is one of the many natural resources that has been depleted after decades of mining activity in and around the Atacama Desert, the driest place on earth and nearby salt pan. You know, David Garofalo mentioned water in his talk last week that we featured, and that was, to me, one of the big takeaways. He said... When we talk about environmentalism, let's talk about water because water is the big issue. And I don't hear that very often, but I think he's probably right. I mean, he would know more than I would, but it sounds like he's right. So, you know, another water issue. 
And finally on this, the country's environmental watchdog ruled against BHP in July 2020, so a year ago. He concluded Escondida, the world's largest copper mine, had caused a decrease in the water table levels greater than 25 centimeters. That is the allowed limit in the Atacama Desert, the world's driest, where the mine is located. So it looks like they took too much water. The case triggered a government-vetted water study, which included looking into the practices used by miners present in the area, home to some of the planet's largest copper and lithium deposits. And currently, BHP now draws 100% of the water for Escondida from the Pacific Ocean. The world's largest miner has vowed to stop using fresh water drawn from the surface and underground in Chile by 2030. So you can read all about that. Uh, they have a massive desalination plant, uh, and they pipeline water 3,200 meters above sea level. So it's pr- they ha- you know so it's not cheap. This is a three and a half billion dollar desalination plant. So that is what's going on with BHP. Meanwhile, scientists have developed a cheap and easy method to extract lithium from seawater, which is pretty interesting. This is by Valentina Ruiz Leotode. Researchers at King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia have developed what they believe is an economically viable system to extract high-purity lithium from seawater. Previous efforts to tease lithium from the mixture of the metal together with sodium, magnesium, and potassium in seawater yielded very little. Although the liquid contains 5,000 times more lithium than can be found on land, it is present at extremely low concentrations of about 0.2 parts per million. To address the issue, the team led by Ziping Lai tried a method that had never been used before to extract lithium ions. They employed an electrochemical cell containing a ceramic membrane made from lithium lanthanum titanium oxide. In a paper published in the journal in Energy and Environmental Science, the researchers explained that the membrane's crystal structure contains holes just wide enough to let lithium ions pass through while blocking larger metal ions. So... You can read that in detail, but it sounds like a pretty amazing breakthrough there that could have pretty huge implications for the lithium market and maybe other markets as well. And we have a report here by Henry Lazenby, our new reporter at the Northern Miner, and miners to continue flying high through 2022, according to a new report from Fitch Solutions, and they are expecting, quote, an exceptional year of earnings through 2022. Despite sky-high earnings, Fitch expects miners to maintain restraint over capital expenditure, instead focusing on further debt reduction with the additional profits generated this year and next. According to the report, the industry is in the age of disruption with technology changing consumption patterns and environmental, social, and governance considerations, shaping the future of market players and inevitably determining success or the contrary. I think Henry's absolutely right, or the writers of this report are absolutely right. What is going on in mining if you had to take a very big picture perspective? Disruption by technology, it's finally happening, right? I mean, there's been talk about technology disruption in mining for a while. It has happened. It is happening. And ESG, environmental, social, and governance concerns, and That seems to be the two big themes if you asked what is going on in mining today. What is happening on a macro level? Disagree? Leave a comment in the comments, please. Always love to hear from people. So they are expecting very strong financial results. And finally, 
We have a story on how higher copper prices are reviving old deposits. And this is also by Henry Lazenby. And this is a very interesting idea, right? I mean, this is what James Dines, the great financial speculator, that's why he loves mining stocks, because a property can be absolutely worthless with silver at $10 an ounce, and it can become a mine at $20 an ounce, silver. And so that's why you get these two-cent stocks that go up to a dollar, and whatever the case might be, or why you get this enormous leverage, maybe two cents to 20 cents, or whatever the case might be. So that is what is happening with these old copper deposits. Now that the copper price is moving higher, you're seeing some interest in these smaller copper deposits, which were once forgotten. Just two examples include U.S. Copper, which has this week mobilized exploration crews to the Superior Copper Deposit in California, and Sweden-based Copperstone Resources, which has for the first time in 25 years opened and entered the former Viscaria Copper Mine site. So you can read about that story. It's pretty interesting, a micro view of kind of a macro situation. And Henry talks to the CEOs of those companies. Another interesting story from our new reporters. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on June 8th, gold is trading at $1,895.08. That is $18 lower than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $27.73 per ounce. That is $0.51 cents lower than last week's quote, and platinum is trading at $1,167.09 per ounce. That is $27 lower than last week, and palladium is trading at $2,820.60 per ounce. That is $42 lower than last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.47 per pound. That is 14 cents lower than last week's quote. Aluminum is unchanged at $1.09 per pound. Lead is 3 cents lower at 97 cents per pound. Nickel is 5 cents higher at $8.13 per pound. Tin is 20 cents lower at $14.98 per pound. And cobalt is 50 cents lower at $19.28 per pound. And zinc is at $1.35. That's three cents lower than last week. So what do we see? Commodity prices, although slightly lower, remain elevated and are all at their near-term highs. So, you know, again, we look at the 10-year bond at 1.55%. The bond market would seem to suggest that they think that inflation is transitory. The commodities market, on the other hand, seems to be telling us a different story for the time being. It's pulled back a tiny bit. We shall see if that continues and if those prices 
are also transitory? That is the big question. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have a featured panel from the Global Mining Symposium in May, Tackling Technical Debt with Cloud-Based Technologies. And this features Anthony Downs, Head of Digital Transformation at Valet, and Dean Gehring, Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Newmont. And they are interviewed by Northern Miners Senior Reporter and Science Reporter Carl A. Williams. So delve deep into what is one of the most important aspects of a modern mining company, particularly those mining companies with several mines and operations. This is a must listen with some of the top talent in the world on this subject. So I hope you enjoy it and we will see you on the other side. Anthony and all the delegates on our chat today, well, a warm welcome to you all. And I think this is going to be another fascinating insight into how the industry is transforming digitally and how going forward, it's going to just become more and more um, part of current business operations. I thought I'd start off the discussion with a, a little bit of an insight into, well, uh, we've got a report coming out very soon, uh, the Northern Miner working with Amazon Web Services, Xeris uh, and Obscuru. We surveyed mining executives across the industry to get a sense of where they were with cloud technology. And what was quite insightful, I think it'd be a nice way to start, is 70% reported using cloud technology extensively, about a third occasionally, 27% uh, used them frequently, and 60% reported never using them. So I think there's still a big gap. There's a long way to go in in the understanding of the industry of cloud technologies and then actually implementing them. So first of all, the title is of our discussion, Tackling Technical Debt with Cloud-Based Technologies. Dean, if I can maybe come to you first, what do we mean by technical debt? What happens often, Carl, and I think it's probably the mining industry is a big offender of this, is when we, we spend money and invest money in cycles. Um, when when our, the commodity cycles are, are high, we'll, we'll tend to invest more. When they're not, they won't. And oftentimes what struggles is our computer infrastructure. And so, you know, we need to be replacing our computer equipment, our infrastructure on a, just as we would replace any other types of equipment we're operating in sites. Data centers is one of those things that if we're maintaining our own data centers, our own databases, the computers to store that data, and it starts to get old and out of cycle, um, we start to build up what we call a technical debt, meaning that we really need to replace that equipment. And if we don't replace it on a, a regular schedule, uh, we start to experience outages. Uh, we start to fall behind on patches for software, which then ca causes us to fall behind on cybersecurity protections. And we just end up in this debt, or what we call the technical debt, of not being able to keep up with the, the technology and where we want to be as a company. Thank you for that, Dean. I think that gives a clear idea that uh, this is a big issue and is only going to get bigger for companies going forward as as we mentioned, the technology became more available. Anthony, maybe i come to yourself for a moment. What, what would you say the key drivers for, for the industry are? You know, our industry captures a, a phenomenal amount of data, you know, day in and day out. And one of the, the, the key tricks is how do you unlock the value trapped in, in that data? So, you know, there, there's a whole range of things that, that you can do with that data around simulation, around optimization, around using that data to predict future future states, whether it be commodity price, whether it be asset health, you know, there's a whole range of things. So 
what is typical in, in, in many mining companies is we have significantly more data being collected than we're actively using and, and, and getting value out of. And that, that, that's the focus, to, to try to unlock that trapped value. Anthony, maybe if you could just expand a little bit on, again, focusing on the data side, which is what this is really all about at the end of the day. But if you could just maybe give a, a, a sort of bit of a, a, a sort of insight on, on where Valley is, is sort of, uh, you, what is the benefit? It's all very well having this data, but what would you say is a, a sort of key area for yourselves at Valley where this, is, this has benefited yourselves? So, so one of the key areas we're applying it to at the moment is, is around safety and risk reduction and also around around productivity. So uh, in Canada, we have a significant portfolio of underground operations uh, and they're supported by a number of surface plants. What we've been doing recently is, is deploying LTE underground, really lighting that up, really getting that connectivity underground. And what that's allowing us to do in real time is take a number of disparate data feeds into let's call it an air traffic control tower for our mind. And then we're able to, to understand, you know, how, how are we tracking versus plan, being able to, to you know, get the, the trigger action response plans in place. And we're looking at that high double digits increase in, in productivity as significant decreases in incidences by better situational awareness, better understanding in real time what's happening with our people, what's happening with our equipment, and, and what's happening with, with the all body that we're working in. Dean, come to yourself. I'll ask you the same question. If we could talk a little bit maybe about Newmont's journey with uh, cloud computing. Where did it start? What were the motivations? And again, maybe highlight some of the key areas you think where what has really benefited the business. Yeah, for us, it, it, it starts off with a, a really basic point that we just wanted to get out of the, the data center business. We had too many data centers around the world that we were trying to maintain, and they were being maintained to, to various levels, and we just weren't seeing the, the reliability that we wanted. And so for us, that was really the first step, is that we knew we could do better. We also started to recognize that you're able to support a cloud-based infrastructure so much easier than, than you can site-based infrastructures, in particular in remote areas. So not only were we seeing the, the, the costs go down for maintaining that, but also just the, the resources that were that were required. Uh, then the knock-on benefits become, it, it helped assist us in standardization. Um, so we, we've talked about, I think Carl, you mentioned on, on the onset of your comments that um, the scalability of this technology is really important. Well, having standardization and then the scalability that can follow on from that uh, really gives a lot of flexibility. So as Anthony mentioned, we collect a tremendous amount of data in this industry. And as we see new data sources come online, we, we can so easily flex cloud storage capabilities to, to respond to that. Finally, for us, we, you know, it was cybersecurity enhancements. Um, by having everything to a high level of standard, it, it supports um, uh, better cybersecurity. We'll come on to that question in a moment, actually, because that was quite a significant, as we surprised, that data security is a huge issue. The recent survey showed that as well in terms of different approaches by the companies, how piecemeal, how disjointed they are. So we'll come on to that in a moment. But Dean, stay maybe sticking with yourself for a moment. It sounds like a panacea in many ways, close confusion to a lot of problems. Uh, Anthony referred to health and safety, being able to track people, uh, there's ESG implications. Right across the board, it's difficult to find a part of the business where in some way cloud uh, computing can't enhance the efficiency of, of those business processes. But what would you say are the main challenges that you faced in Newmont when you started down this road of bringing cloud computing in? I know many times I've as a consultant, I would talk to companies about technologies and there's an, an incrudality factor 
you have to get beyond with companies. I wonder if you could maybe talk to that for a moment, some of the key major challenges you face. Yeah, Carl, most of our sites are very accustomed to operating autonomously. Uh, they need to have that ability to, to control their destiny. And so one of the challenges is just that fear of losing control. When, they, when you start to tell people your data storage isn't going to be on site, it's actually going to be in, in the cloud and they don't really know where that is and it's hard for people to necessarily understand what does that mean and what's their accountabilities and how reliable is it going to be? And so it's it's helping people, you know, through that, just through a, a very disciplined and focused change management process, bringing people along for the journey. Uh, the other challenge that comes in is the bandwidth to some of our more remote sites and having that ability to, to make people comfortable that we're not only removing your data offsite, but you'll still be able to get it. So that's another challenge that, that we had to, to help people with. And one of the things that we did along those lines is we we standardized our, our global solution providers, you know, making sure that the bandwidth pipes um, were, were very big going to our sites as big as possible to try to remove that that risk and concern that the, the people at the sites had for, for losing their data. Uh, but what I can say is that once once we got past that, it was a very quick transition when people started to recognize the step change and improvement that they were seeing because of taking those steps. Anthony, I put the same question to you. From your experience as well, like, with the introduction of or implementation of cloud and cloud-based technologies, I want to say the sort of, sort of the really headline challenges you faced and maybe still are facing in terms of getting that adoption within inside the company and, and the implementation of these of these solutions. Well, I'd say we're, we're pretty much, uh, you know, spot on in, in alignment with, with Dean and, and his team, right? So it's the operational leadership not not fully understanding what, what the cloud is, how it works, and, and being uh, being concerned about, you know, not being able to walk down the hall, open a door and kind of point at this big box that, that, that has their data in it, right? Uh, and they're saying it's going to the cloud, et cetera. There, there's a level of unknowingness in there that, that you really need that change management. But just like Dean, once we got some use cases going, once we started doing it, uh, you know, the comfort level quickly grew. And, you know, today, you know, a, a lot of the, the the operational leaders, you know, are, are comfortable with it and probably don't even necessarily want to enter into a discussion about where is their data because they're, they're, they're comfortable, they know they can access it, and they know that it's got the right level of security around it. I think that's going to be a common experience for a lot of companies that have uh, gone down this road or, or when they do, I think they're going to encounter them uh, uh, pretty early in that process. One of the interesting outcomes from the, the survey I mentioned earlier on, which we uh, will have a report on the North Minor website coming sooner, is that a 31% or sort of third of the responses said that budgetary constraints were the biggest problem uh, with uh, uptaking uh, or implementing new, new solutions. I don't think that's probably the biggest surprise. I, maybe what surprises me is that that figure wasn't higher. And also as well, uh, in terms of uh, data security, came in sort of second place with about a fifth of responses. Anthony, uh, sticking with yourself for the moment, you faced these challenges. What strategy did you adopt as the head of digital transformation at Valley? How did you approach those who may be rather skeptical or gain that, that knowledge gap in, uh, in the black box element that is cloud? How do you overcome that sort of reluctance to, to go down this road? Maybe you could just talk to some of the strategies to help help others out there. As Dean was referring to, uh, traditionally in, in technology, it's been very much kind of a, a, a wave type investment, right? So you, you make a large investment, get everything up to date, and then it deteriorates over time to a point where you can't bear to let it deteriorate anymore. And then you kind of have that spike back up and then you let it deteriorate again. 
and, and most of the time that's capital, right? And and you're competing with capital for the new sag mill, you're competing with capital for new tank lining, you're competing with capital, you know, across the, the, the whole operating business. What what cloud computing allows you to do is to turn that OPEX that so that that capital spend into into an operating expense, right? So it's like paying your phone bill, it's like paying your your electric bill. And and what we've found is that as you get more advanced in the way that you're using cloud, it's very much like paying the phone bill, right? So it's not a a, a fixed cost if you're using more computing because you're doing some simulation models or some optimization models and you need more computing power for the month, you pay for it. If you're not running those models for the next three months, then you don't pay for it. it, it it's a consumption-based model. And, you know, you need to work with with your, your your partners to kind of model that out, right? So there's there's sophisticated Excel spreadsheets, et cetera, where you kind of map out what you predict your usage will be. And it, and it will clearly show you in a, in a predictable way what, uh, what what your costs are going to be. And and as Dean said, the, the key thing is is the overhead to run cloud, right? The number of people that you need, the number of people you need to to to, to focus on keeping it running, can potentially be at a, at, a, at a very different level than than what your traditional IT structure might look like. Dean, what what strategies did you adopt um, to? Uh influence those budget holders uh, within the organization there to get them to uh, either at least, at least consider cloud or, or to go down that road? Well, for us, it was, it was twofold. One, it, going back to the, the waves of spending that Anthony mentioned, if, if you can time that right and you're saying we're at a point where we need to make a large capital investment and we're not going to do that, rather we're going to switch some of that to operating costs and buy a service versus buy the hardware, it actually shows up as a savings. So we were able to do that. We were at a point where we needed to make some investment and we chose to, to take a different route. So that was actually something that the, the organization was, was very keen to do. So if you're not in that sort of timing, um, it can be more challenging. Uh, and then the other point, again, what Anthony mentioned is uh, we, we developed use cases and we staged the implementation. It's not something that you have to do that the entire organization has to adopt overnight. Um, you can look at it on, on the site by site or even take subcomponents of a site. So it, it really allows itself to, to be staged in a way to help the organization be able to digest what it has the capacity to, to digest during that time. I think that gives some really good insight for those companies out there who are now looking to either start that journey or some way down it in order to adopt those strategies to get, to, to get buy-in from the powers to be. Coming back to the data security, which is always going to be an issue, I don't think that's ever going to go away. For as long as we've got people who want to hack systems, they're going to have systems that are going to be hackable. But there are strategies that companies can employ to protect their systems. Again, coming back to the, the information that we, uh, we glean from those survey, uh, a lot of the respondents there were actually saying that they're either not taking any um, uh, actions to secure their systems, they didn't know what they were, and when they did, it was rather piecemeal. So, so maybe, uh, Anthony, coming to yourself here, how do you approach the subject of data security? In the context of, of storing our data and, and, and leveraging our data in the cloud, we're confident the, the, the major cloud providers have a level of sophistication in, in both their security teams and, and their monitoring tools that would far exceed anything that we as a, as a, as a global mining company could, could bring to the table ourselves. That's not to say that that we as users of that cloud service can't do silly things, right? Like weak passwords or no passwords or, you know, 
misusing the tools, right? You can still get yourself in trouble if you do, you know, silly things. But the the overall environment that our data is being stored in is is significantly more secure because, you know, the big cloud providers in reality can't afford for things to go wrong, right? You know, Microsoft, uh, AWS, those guys, you know, couldn't afford for significant issues and therefore they invest in the in the right skills, the right tools to to make sure that the the data they're holding is going to be is going to be secured. Yeah. Just to emphasize again, you know, if you Google, you know, AWS cyber, you'll find that there are events, but they're kind of drawn back to misusing the system rather than weaknesses in the system itself. Sure. To a large extent, then, um, I, I think, would it be fair to say that you're kind of outsourcing your security data security needs? To the, the the cloud provider? Um, no, my, my my cybersecurity team would kind of you know freak out if, if we were if we were to say that. So so look, we, we do have uh, we do have a you know a, a highly skilled internal cybersecurity team that that's overlooking you know everything that we do, including the cloud. But the the security of the cloud and the data in the cloud isn't isn't in their in their top ten, probably not even in their top fifty concerns. There are, there are lots of other things that the internal cybersecurity team is, is focusing their attention on. Sure. Um, Dean, what if you could talk to that as well? Data security, what's Newmont doing uh, themselves? What's their strategy? Well, the way I look at this is that the, the protection offered by the cloud as it relates to cybersecurity is just an additional layer of protection. So it, it's 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 not the, the end all and be all of, of protection so much what, what Anthony mentioned. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important is if you think about, you know, you know, as Anthony mentioned, we can do silly things. And those silly things in, in many kind of take cases, in the worst case for us, leads to some sort of ransomware attack where your, your information is actually locked up. And this is becoming a very prolific type of attack. Uh, you can open, open up the newspapers and see it almost, almost weekly that, that some major company or government's been um, struck this way. And what happens to those that don't know, it's actually the data is locked up. You can't use it. You can see it, but you can't access it. And then you get an email from somebody saying, if you want to access us, pay us this much in Bitcoin, we'll give you the security code and you can get it. Um, if your data is backed up well, uh, you, you're not worried by that. You're saying, I don't need it because I have it elsewhere. And that's something that I think the, the cloud storage helps with. We all in the past with our um, on-site data storage, we always put these cascading backup systems in place. We thought we had it backed up, but you didn't have to press very hard to find out that they often weren't being used very well. Where in a cloud system, uh, the backups are just so much better than I've ever seen any mining company actually do well. So if you do have an event, you actually have a way way to recover from that event. I think this is really interesting, Dean. I'd like to stay with you for a moment because you've got an interesting question to come in. I was going to wait for the end for the Q&A with our our delegates, but I think this is a good timing for this question. One of our Participants today on the on the panel discussion has asked if uh, if you could talk about what the risk presented by large power outages on operations that are cloud dependent, and then by extrapolation, what the risk of that is to data security. Have you had this situation, or or, or could you talk to uh, in a more general terms about that that question? Yeah. So so the way that we're using um, you know cloud storage, it's not to operate the plants. Um, it's really pulling data that's being generated and using that in ways to help track and provide predictive analytics for what we can do differently. And that, that was something Anthony mentioned earlier. So there, there is a, an independent link between the data that's required to operate the plant that's localized at site versus how that data is then being pulled into the cloud to be used for other reasons. 
Anthony, if you could maybe uh, respond to that as well, please. Yeah, so, so to Dean's point, the, the, the cloud isn't the, the be-all and end-all, right? So it's not going to be the solution for, for everything. And like Dean and his team, you know, we're not using cloud-based systems to control our surface plants to, you know, to control critical systems on, on site. H having said that, having the data stored in the cloud and not on a, on a particular operating site means if there's an issue on that site, you know, from, from power or, or, or any other issue, uh, you can still get access to that data from other locations, right? So if we have an issue in, in one particular operations and there's, there's no power to that data center anymore and we were fortunate enough to move the data to the cloud, then we could still get access from another, you know, from Toronto, from Brazil, from another one of our locations and, and access the information we need that, you know, may actually be very key in the recovery of that site back to back to full operations. So having that data kind of sitting ex securely externally to the physical operating site, uh, you know, do does have some distinct advantages. Anthony, maybe sticking with yourself for a moment as well, we've got another very interesting question coming. Do you see a time that where uh, companies will uh, expect uh, contractors or suppliers to the, to the industry to have a certain cloud infrastructure and cybersecurity in place? Uh, and use that maybe as a leverage to be the uh, the preferred supplier. So, so we 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 take an interest in the cybersecurity of of our key partners, right? Because it's a connected ecosystem, right? And you know you'll 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 see some uh, some cybersecurity you know stories on on the internet where you know very large retailers have been hacked by IoT in in an aquarium, for example, right? So you know these these people will find their weakest link that may not be you. But, but be a pathway to you. So, so yes, we, we want our key vendors to be uh, as secure as we are. We don't have a preference on, you know, which cloud provider they, they use or, or in fact today, uh, if, they, if they use a cloud provider. But I, I don't think it's going to be potentially a, an issue. You know, the various clouds are interconnected enough. You can handle it no matter, uh, you know, what, what provider they, uh, they end up using. But, to, to your key point, yes, we, we want to make sure that, that our partners aren't going to be a vulnerability for us via, via a weaker uh, cybersecurity stance than, than what we have. Uh, Dean, I put the, put the same question to yourself. Are you making moves to uh, ask your vendors or, or, or even make them preferred vendors if they do have this uh, cybersecurity infrastructure and are using clouds to provide in some way their services to you? Yeah, similar to, to Anthony's comment, um, we do have an expectation of, of certain levels of cybersecurity that they have to um, be, you know, maintain. But also we have a, a segmentation approach to our network where we don't, you know, not all data is treated the same, not all access is treated the same. So we will compartmentalize the access that certain vendors get so they can't, if they do something silly, it doesn't have a cascading effect onto our network. And I think if I'm right in saying that we've got time for maybe one more question here. And it, it's come back to, not surprisingly, the issue of cybersecurity. What happens when you are hacked? And I wouldn't ask either of you to, to go into any Greek detail if either of your respective companies have had that experience. But maybe speaking in a theoretical future where that may happen, what, what, um, what access do they get to the data? So, well, I, I can I can kick that off. Um, we were very fortunate to be able to to hire uh, a former Microsoft employee that that worked in their cyber protection area, 
uh, for 20 years as our senior director of, of cyber. And so I've learned a lot about cybersecurity. I mean, that is not my background. I've had to learn a lot about it. I've learned a lot from him. And I've asked that same question. And that's why I have a, a little bit of understanding. Um, if, if you are hacked, typically what happens is, is that, and they use a lot of military type terms. I mean, they'll deploy a payload in your in your system that'll sit dormant for maybe weeks and then it'll start to to spread out across your system silently and then it'll go active and people what they typically notice is they can't access their data and they don't know what's happening then they call it it looks and realizes oh there's there's an encryption on this that we can't open and then you'll get a note from somebody oftentimes in um, eastern europe that will say if you want your data back here's here's how much bitcoin you need to send us anthony yeah, so just, just just talking generally, and and again, if people want to dive in, you know, there's some some fairly easily Google searches will will get you some insights. But look, I, I think there are a number of nation states and others who have an interest in understanding what mining companies are doing, what their finances are like, what their future plans are like, so that they can leverage that to their to their advantage. And you know, and there are, there are a range of actors that you know have have you know either commercial gain or intellectual gain by by you know getting into other systems. We have a level of monitoring. We have a level of proactiveness where we're we're watching for unusual things that occur. We have a you know a, a trigger action response plan to to handle those as as they occur. Um, and you know we we've tried to design and engineer with security in mind, right? Just like you would when you're building a, a physical plant. So as Dean alluded to, you know we have segmentation, for example. So it's not just a an open door. If you if you come in through the window, you can get to the whole place. It, it it's segmented up, and that's that's one of the the many controls we have in place to to kind of contain and 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 manage any potential risk that we have. Anthony Dean, many thanks indeed. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for having us. So thank you to Anthony and Dean and Carl for a great panel. We have more to come. Hope you're having a wonderful start to the summer. The drama continues. And if you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Leave us a like on YouTube. And until next week, take care. This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com. And you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF.